Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. As many of you will know, that was an infamous excerpt from Donald Trump's presidential announcement speech of June 16, 2015, a landmark event in the rise of his MAGA movement, which of course stands for Make America Great Again. It's a populist movement that swept up tens of millions of American voters who put Trump into the White House in 2016 and who may make him president once again later this year. One of the most fervent MAGA supporters during the 2010s is my guest today, New York State native Rich Logis. During Trump's first presidential campaign and his presidency, Rich worked tirelessly on behalf of Trump and wrote for numerous conservative outlets in support of the MAGA movement. MAGA consumed his whole existence, he says, including his social life, as he walked away from friendships with people whom he viewed as enemies of MAGA ideals. But then in 2021, he began to have second thoughts for at least two reasons. Logis had become deeply concerned by the laissez-faire attitude of many Republicans when it came to COVID public health measures, an approach that he believed was causing people to die. Logis also became alarmed at the manner by which many MAGA supporters seemed to defend or even endorse the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill, which Logis compares to a coup d'etat. In time, he began to drift away from MAGA, and then rejected outright, as he sought to exit himself from what he now regards as its cult-like social and ideological dynamic. As he'll explain in the interview that follows, Logis, who now lives in Florida, has set up a group called Leaving MAGA, which he believes can help others, and those around them, manage the same transition, including the acts of social reconciliation that will be necessary to repair the rifts that this movement has caused. When couples are in couples therapy, the therapist says, let's remind each other of the thing that attracted you to the person in the first place. Tell me about the thing that attracted you to Donald Trump in the first place. I think that I'm actually very, very similar to probably the majority of Trump voters. I grew up in a middle class household. I was a public school graduate. Both of my folks, they were they had worked their whole entire adult lives between a mixture of public and private jobs. I had Overall, a good childhood growing up. I wasn't want for the necessities. I also grew up at a time when it was the pre-2008 mortgage and housing crisis. And I watched my parents get foreclosed on while we were all living in the house. And I remember moving our possessions. So I I went through this phase where uh, I wasn't that political in high school in my early parts of my college days. But when I got to college, it's where I started to develop some of my sensibilities for politics and trying to understand some of these complex domestic and international issues. And I graduated college in the year 2000. I was 23 years old, still in New York. And my first vote was for Ralph Nader. 
there's a consumer rights left wing guy, right? Un unsafe at any speed was uh... unsafe at any speed. You know, it's because of him that we we've got seatbelts in cars. And while I didn't really understand so much the politics of the day, what attracted me to the Ralph Nader campaign is that I figured out that both parties didn't like him. Now, it's definitely true looking back that the Democratic Party disliked him more than the Republican Party did. But I did see him as someone who was who was operating autonomously from the two party system. So it was really around that time where my suspicion and skepticism of the two party system, that's where that's that's the genesis of that skepticism. And so for the next decade and a half, I became more and more political. But during that decade and a half between 2000 and 2015, I also increasingly became more and more in an unhealthy and I think unreasonable way, loathing of the two party system, believing that both parties were essentially the same. And then 2015 comes along as someone who was so vehemently against the two party system. If everyone recalls around the world, before Trump came on the scene, the expected election was going to be Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. Now, I, as an anti-two-party person, I looked at that as basically a quasi-monarchical political dynasty. I mean, even people I knew who were not political, even they said to me, Rich, didn't we fight the British and sever from the crown so we'd have autonomy? Now we have dynasties again, Clintons and Bush. So I was already prepping for the, well... I guess I need to figure out for whom I'll vote, another third party candidate. And then Trump comes along. When he came on the scene, he would make some comments about economic outsourcing, some of the anxieties that we felt uh, across the country. And I found myself, Jonathan, more and more nodding in agreement. And I said, yeah, you know, he'd make a comment about outsourcing. I'd say, yeah, that's, that's true. He'd make a comment about the feeling that people had that they were left behind and unseen and unrecognized by the political class. And contextually, as an anti-two-party system guy, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, that's true. You know, I, I agree with Trump on this. So I wasn't one of these, I supported him when he came down the escalator kind of guys. But there was something I figured out also pretty quickly about him, in that it was both parties didn't like him. Now, unlike Ralph Nader, who again was disliked more by the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, I think, equally disdained Trump. And when I figured that out and I found myself concurring with some of his points, that's when I was in. And when I got in, I said, I thought that Trump pretty early on was the only Republican who could defeat Hillary Clinton. And the reason I, I thought that is because I allowed myself as a political but ignorant person, I allowed myself to be influenced by those who didn't just disagree with the Democratic Party on policy or politics or style and substance. I was around others who, who really believed that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party posed an existential threat to our country. What kind of apocalypse did you think was going to happen if Hillary Clinton was going to win? How was this disaster going to unfold? You know, looking back on it now, it's a very logical confusion. There was a lot of catastrophizing, and I, I adopted that pretty early on. Again, I went through 15 years of shaping and conditioning my own thought process about our two parties. And when I looked at Hillary Clinton, I saw her as the embodiment of this entire system. And, and I saw Trump as 
And yes, he ran as a Republican, but he really was, again, like Nader, operating from the outside. And he came in and said, let's take a sledgehammer to this system. Let's take a flamethrower to the system. And I was finding my, I was, I gravitated to that. And I more and more fell into this really, really deep rabbit hole of if Hillary Clinton is elected, the Democratic Party is going to, is going to take over the country. They're going to electorally, they're going to rule America permanently. And Trump is the only one in the Make America Great Again movement, only one and the only movement who could stop that. And there's a lot, and Jonathan, there's a lot about this that really is illogical. It's not really explicable. I think the general public really does underestimate, as I did, just how easy it is to fall prey, where I said, yes, this is the guy I'm waiting for. This is the guy I wanted all these years, this son of a bitch who's going to come in, he's going to smash the system. And Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, these guys want to take over. I know what they're up to. I know how they operate in the two-party system. We need somebody to come in and, and push back on that. In fact, I looked at MAGA, I looked at 2016, in addition to the fact that we were validated. And I think it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the entire world was against we. And by we, I mean Trump and the MAGA soldiers. The whole world was against us. So winning that night, it was a validation. We felt vindicated. And for the Make America Great Again, the entire movement of it, I actually saw it. It just sounds so delusional for me to say it now. But I saw it as a second founding of the country. We looked at the 2016 election as a new historical era, that we were living in a, in a moment of history unlike any other, and that we were on the right side. And anybody, it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or you were a national review writer who was against Trump, you were either with us or you were against us. We were good. The other side was evil. We were the real Americans. Everybody else they were the enemy Americans. And that binary black and white. It's also a statement that applies to any cultish movement, whether it's a religious movement or social justice, radicals. It happens on the left and the right. The sort of you're either with us or against us idea. Agreed. Agreed. For me, the moment when Trump became somebody I just I couldn't believe why anybody would vote for him was. Do you remember that time when he disparaged the parents of a Muslim American soldier who had been killed in a suicide attack in Iraq in 2004. Yes. Trump went after this, it was like a war hero, this guy's parents. If you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. The soldier's name was Humayun Khan. And I saw Trump publicly denigrate the parents of somebody who gave their life in service to the United States. One of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And I remember looking at it saying, like, in a million years, who's going to vote for this guy? I know this is a very specific thing, and Trump's done many terrible things. Do you remember that? And what was your response to it? How did you rationalize stuff like that? The way we did is that as the campaign went on and on, and I became more and more convinced that we needed to do everything in our power to prevent Hillary Clinton from being the president. Now, if somebody believes that and someone believes that the opposition poses this existential threat to life, livelihood and family, that person will support anyone or anything to ensure that Hillary was not elected president. One example I like to cite now, and it's a hindsight example, when I look back and, and my curiosity, let's say, about the Trump campaign should have ended in a bloody death was what he said about John McCain. He supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. 
So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. <laughs> but, but Frank, Frank, let me get hero. to it. He hit me. Hero. He's not a war He's hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you agree when he made that comment? Like, right then and there, looking back on this, I should have said, sayonara. I looked at that comment, and I thought, okay, I turned the other way, and I did not defend it publicly. Privately, there were lots of us who knew that he should not have said that. The Gold Star family comment. The comment, some of the comments at his, at his announcement speech about Mexicans. Some of the other comments he made throughout about, let's, let's ID Muslims who come into the country. Deep down... I didn't support those parts of the campaign, but I rationalized it and justified it because this was the only person who could stop Hillary. And I allowed myself to, even though I disagree with it, as a result of working for the Trump campaign, I did, I did writings for the campaign literature. I did pro bono work that's normally paid for. And I did that as a volunteer in the Trump campaign. So yes, there were statements that were made. You point out those, these others. I knew that he shouldn't have said that. I knew that they weren't, quote unquote, presidential. But Jonathan, the honest God truth is that we weren't thinking about, oh, he's presidential. We, we were looking at a person. We said, we want a guy coming in wielding the iron fist. We want the, the son of a bitch to come in. We want the brass, abrasive guy. So we just looked the other way and rationalized it that way because he was the only person standing in between. What I thought is that if Hillary became president, Everyone in America who was not a Democrat would be irrelevant. If you hear the way I'm saying this now, just saying it to you, I am putting myself back in that time when I thought that. The more and more I was around others who said it, because MAGA, even to this day, it provides a community. And even now, as I'm saying, I feel those, I feel those emotions. You talk about MAGA like it's a kind of cult. Is that what we're talking about? For me, I, I will say for myself, being in MAGA was a cult-like environment. It was a constant adrenaline rush of feeling like I was this patriotic soldier with Trump as the general fighting against an enemy who wanted to take over the country and, the Democrat, and not just the Democratic Party, but the rhinos, Republicans in name only, as we call them, globalists, as we, as we call them. I looked at that as that was my role. What news sources were you consuming at this time? Breitbart was the news site that I, prob I probably most consumed information from. And then there were some I wrote that were just fire-breathingly right-wing, such as American Thinker, another one, what's called WND. Well, World Net Daily. Oh, that's crazy. The founder of World Net Daily is... Joseph Farah. ...who originated the Birther Conspiracy. Oh, I, I know all about that. I, uh, I wrote about him for my book on conspiracy theories. That's the site that had the article about how drinking soy milk makes you gay, which is not true, by the way. I mean, like hearing that it doesn't even shock me that that would be in there. Like, it's totally believable. And I wrote for some other sites, American Greatness. Those sites I was writing for is also where I got my news. Now, there was some Fox News in there as well. I became a little bit more of a Fox viewer in the second half of the Trump presidency. And the pundit I most consumed was Tucker Carlson. Even at the time in MAGA, I thought Sean Hannity, he's regurgitated the same shtick for year after year after year. Laura Ingram was okay. I found her a little bit in between Hannity and Tucker, but Tucker Carlson was the go-to at Fox News. Your old MAGA compadres, are they still lapping it up with Tucker Carlson? Yes. 
I'm sure that they are. I am not in contact with a lot of those I, I was formerly in MAGA with. Well, you're a heretic. Or actually, you're worse than a heretic. You're an apostate. I drifted away. Yeah, I drifted away. Let's talk a little bit of the social aspect. You've written how you had pre-existing relationships from before the Donald Trump era. You acted like a jerk and those relationships, at least temporarily, were destroyed. So what I did with with a lot of my friends, and I, I should say many of them weren't just friends. These were people who were influential in my life. They were mentors. They gave me second and third and fourth chances growing up that I didn't deserve. And it was really a kind of quiet quitting in the relationships. I just didn't contact them. I lost touch with them intentionally because I knew, Jonathan, that they voted Democrat. And I knew that they did because I had talked about politics for a very, very long time, year after year with many of them. And so I lost touch with them, not because of anything they did, but because I did, because I knew that they were voting and siding with the enemy. And I didn't have any time. I was not going to devote time and resources to any kind of fraternizing with with those I deemed as on the enemy side. I woke up thinking about MAGA. When I'd have my breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I thought about it. When I was at night sitting at my computer writing, I thought about it. I mean, I mean, I probably dreamt, you know, I probably dreamt about it. It took me an entire year to leave MAGA because I had just so immensely invested financially and morally and politically and spiritually in this MAGA movement. It was my life. It was another family. When I finally went through that year of wrestling with my just my thoughts at night and coming to this, increasingly coming to this conclusion that so much of what I believe was wrong, my, my conscience, w- the alarm would not stop sounding. And so I went through this period where I knew that if I actually made this decision to say, that is not me, I do not want to support and accept this anymore. I knew that my life of the last half decade, the people I met, the activities I did, the Trump groups I spoke at, the Trump groups I sponsored, everything MAGA and Trump, it was going to go away. And there's no doubt that as I thought about this, I had to ask myself, do I want to really move on from that? It's, it's all I've had. So the sunk cost fallacy prospect was, do I stay and just accept what I have now deemed no longer acceptable? Or do I say no? I'm out. I can't support this anymore. I can't support the the stances on the COVID vaccine. I can't support the Republican Party calling January 6th, quote, legitimate political discourse. I came to these two lines of demarcation of how the political right talked about COVID and the vaccine, especially as kids were getting sick in the summer of 21. And you had January 6th with the insurrection and the defense and justification of political violence. So I I had one line, Jonathan, that was the acceptance of avoidable deaths and suffering. And I had this other line, which was defense of what was a coup d'etat orchestrated by the president of the United States, as well as other acolytes and sycophantic groups. He knew we're going to go to the Capitol almost certainly, and we're going to riot. When I got to those two lines, I had to decide, do I reverse course or do I cross them? And when I got to those Rubicons, I'm going to say something, Jonathan, that I can't prove to anyone, but I'm virtually certain of. If I cross those two lines... I don't ever come out of MAGA. I would never, ever have come out because that's where the full realization, the crystallization of sunk cost fallacy, that's when it would have been complete. I mean, I stared into that abyss and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I left. 
I emancipated myself. We, we have to pick a metaphor. You've emancipated yourself. You're in a heaven and a hell. You're staring at the abyss. You're Caesar crossing the Rubicon. <laughs> you're Paul on the road to Damascus. But I get it. On top of that, it must have been humiliating. So my theory is that it was actually easier for people to change their mind 20 or 30 years ago because there wasn't a paper trail. Like if I Google you and I, I look for stuff that you wrote in the late 2010s, am I going to find like a lot of Trump Kool-Aid stuff? Have you tried to delete all that stuff? Some of it I did, but a lot of it's out in the public domain. And in hindsight, I'm actually glad it is because it's quite common for me to receive comments, let's say on social media, Twitter, where I'll, I'll get a comment saying, you know, bullshit, you weren't actually in MAGA, you weren't actually a Trump voter. I want people to know that I wasn't actually acting when I was in MAGA. I was a sincere, true believer. And so now I have this collection of works when I was aspiring right-wing pundit, and it's out there. I had a professionally produced podcast that you'll still find episodes out on the internet. You know, there are some people who just, by their nature, they kind of become disaffected with political camps and swing back. Like, could you see yourself swinging back into a more hardcore conservative orbit? No. And then you're going to ask me to erase this podcast. Ten years from now, you might say, John, <laughs> you got to do me a favor. No. Stick it in a vault. I want you to hold me accountable. Okay. <laughs> I want you to hold me publicly accountable. And actually on that point, and I, I do feel like uh, in trying to bring some credibility to what we're doing in this work of leaving MAGA, trying to empower people to leave, have them, have them tell their stories, and then find these reconciliations, I am not registered with any political party. I am registered to vote, but I'm not registered with any political party. So we would say, broadly speaking, an independent. Not the Independence Party, but an independent. Now, having said that, I also have been very clear, and I have to give a disclaimer that uh, I'm not saying this because I, in any way, work for or, or done anything for the Biden campaign or the Democratic Party. But in November, I will not vote for Republicans. I will vote for Democrats because I believe that the Republican Party is not a party that can be saved and salvaged. It allowed Donald Trump and MAGA to really take over this party. And we talked about sunk cost fallacy. The party has already crossed that line of demarcation. There's no going back for it. The party has to be mercy killed. So I made clear, I am taking this side, not because I love everything about the Democratic Party, not because I agree with all policies, but, and, and I don't identify as a, as a left-wing activist, but in terms of conservatism, even when I was actually in MAGA, Jonathan, I didn't consider myself a Republican or conservative. What I called myself was a Trump nationalist. That's what I referred to myself as, a Trump nationalist. And now a brief break from the Quillette podcast so I can give you my regularly scheduled nudge to go visit us at Quillette.com, where this week you can read such insightful essays as The Seven Laws of Pessimism by Martin Boudry, who answers the question, if life is better than ever before, why does the world seem so depressing? Also, A Gathering of the Huns, the seventh installment in Herbert Bushman's epic so-called Dark Ages series. In this one, Herbert describes how disparate Hunnic tribes coalesced into the unified force that would terrorize Europe in the 5th century. And spoiler alert, Herbert is going to get to Attila in the next installment. And so you're going to want to read this one first, so the stage is properly set for one of history's greatest warlords. And now back to the Quillette podcast. So you wrote a widely circulated piece for Newsweek in 2023 
you talk about the moment which prompted this you staring into abysses and the line is i was horrified to find that much of what they believe that's maga is standard propaganda and you're talking about qanon you're talking about people who are apologizing to the january 6th riot you were talking about conspiracy theories about covid and you're centering this moment in in summer 2021 when all of these realizations are coming together about these things that fellow mega compadres believed in you know I, i'm reading this i mean this is 2021 and i'm i'm hearing captain renault from casablanca saying you know i'm shocked shocked to find gambling going on here like 2021 was pretty late in the Trump phenomenon. Yes. Much as you've had MAGA people say, oh, you were never, you know, you were never true MAGA. Do you have some modern day political donatists who are kind of like, well, if it took you to 2021 to realize you were in a toxic cult, I'm sorry, your political antennae just aren't refined enough. Do you acknowledge 2021 is pretty late in the game to, to realize this stuff? I do. And in fact, I would even add to that, that I understand to quite an extent why someone might be skeptical of, of changing of my mind. And I think there's a variety of political and sociological reasons for that. Uh, it is just, it's actually not, I don't think it's really a natural act for us to admit that we're wrong. No, it's not. It's, it's rare. Now, there's a point, though, that you mentioned earlier that is really crucial here. You were asking about the news and information sources. So in an insular community, any information that challenges or rebuts the adopted mythologies of the group is entirely kept out. We don't bring any information in that even remotely could challenge or dispute the information we have. So I was solely reading the Breitbarts and the WNDs and those and the, and the American thinkers and American greatness. These were the, this was the information I consumed all day and all night long. And then when I started to have my doubts in the summer of 21, I did something so important that sounds so simple, but for me, it was really enlightening. I diversified my news and information sources. So what do you read now? So now I have, now I would say I have a, I have a relatively, Healthy mix. Quillette, of course. Correct answer. Correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> Your work with FAIR, right? That's a very valuable work. The Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Yes, yes. I've also got in there, yes, I've got the more traditional New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic. I'll read articles from Reason. Occasionally, I'll read some National Review articles. So if people want to learn more about becoming ex-MAGA, Tell me about this new project you're starting. It's called Leaving MAGA. And what the goal of this organization is, is to find relatability with MAGA voters, because I know that for most of us, there are points that we may not concur with each other, but there are points of relatability. We, we need to humanize those we, we are speaking with, and then we need to better understand why they might think what they think the overall goal isn't to really persuade or change minds, because I find that to be just generally a, it's an endeavor of futility. But what I don't think is hopeless and futile, and I don't think it's a, a Sisyphean effort of pushing a boulder up the hill and then you just- I know who it. Sisyphus is. I work <laughs> at Quillette, very serious. I, I am actually optimistic and hopeful that there is a way to find a reconciliation between MAGA 
Americans and their friends and family. And one of the important broad points of this is that it is very hard to have a functional democracy when people who are closest to each other are in disharmony and alienated from each other and estranged. It's, it's, it's one thing to have people disagree with strangers in the general public, but when when brothers and sisters and moms and dads and sons and daughters are, are, are alienated and at odds with their, their family and their friends, my best man, my, my maiden of honor, these are the kinds of comments that I get. And I have people asking me, Rich, my brother's deep in Naga, what, what, do I, what do I do? And I'm sitting there thinking like, oh my God, like I'm not the savior for this, but I do think that my story, see, I'm not the New York Times in the sense that here the messenger matters. So if we're going to talk about leaving MAGA, I go into a room with MAGA Americans. Number one, I relate to some of the reasons that of why they voted for Trump and even maybe to some extent why they support him. Although I think that those reasons are whatever, whatever logic there was in supporting Trump, I don't believe exists anymore. However, I'm still going to humanize those individuals and say to them, I don't think that you're racist, bigots, phobics, etc. So that's important to do that because it's a little harder to tune me out as somebody who was sincerely in that world and then left for other sincere reasons. I found those reconciliations with those I had cut ties with. I went to them and I said, I was wrong. If you don't accept my apology, I respect that. But I want you to know that I was wrong. And I'm sorry about how I thought about you. You didn't deserve to be thought that way as this enemy combatant in my MAGA world. And every one of them, Jonathan, everyone except one, unfortunately, but I'll work on him. Every one of them said, yes, Rich, we, we accept your apology. And if I'm able to do it, I know others can. Because it was, rare that you'd, it was rare that you would find anyone really deeper in the MAGA world. You know, I used to see flag waving and people would be at a street corner and put a tattoo of Trump on their ass or go on a boat parade. To me, I thought that stuff was innocuous but silly. I was actually doing the work. Wait, wait. People put Trump tattoos on their ass? Oh, I, I shouldn't have said that for the world audience. Now they're going to go online and try to say, yeah, you'll find it. You'll find tra- you'll, uh, among among some other areas of their body. I didn't do that. Rich, this is a family broadcast. <laughs> Former megaholic Rich Logis, thank you for being on the Colette Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 